Hi, and welcome to an episode of the JetRails podcast. I'm Robert Rand, your host, and today we're going to be talking about how online merchants get liquidity in times of turmoil. Uh, I'm joined by Alex from the Payability team, and we're going to be really you know, talking about cash flows and how merchants can continue to operate successfully uh, when their revenue streams are not necessarily normal. Um, in some cases, that's because uh, sales are up uh, and perhaps they, they need to be able to buy more product and replenish uh, at greater levels than they're used to. In other cases, perhaps uh, revenue's down um, and they, they need uh, a, a little bit of a float there um, and you know various other cases in between. So with no further ado, Alex, would you do us the honor of introducing yourself? Yeah, my pleasure. And, uh, you know, thank you for having us. Um, so I've been with Payability for about a year now. I've been in financial technology for a little over seven years and mainly in the alternative lending side. At Payability, I'm the business development and partnerships. So I connect marketplaces and different ecosystem partners with our, you know, different types of cash flow solutions to be able to increase their GMV and increase their the merchants on their platform's GMV. Um, you know, again, I've been in fintech for about seven, a little over seven years. Before that, I was in public accounting, and uh, grew up in small business. So, you know, always have a merchant focus when, uh, whenever we're entering into any types of deals or partnerships or looking to create new solutions. Awesome, um, public accounting. I, I, I'm glad you found the light. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's um yeah, I mean public accounting is uh it's an interesting world. It's um accounting is the language of business, so it's a great tool to have, but it's uh it's a little too inside the box for for the way I typically think. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um and so tell me a little bit about payability. How did payability actually get started? Yeah. So payability was started in uh in 2015. And originally we um so our co-founders have a have an ad tech background. And originally, our premise was helping accelerate commission payouts for affiliate marketers. And we were doing that for about a year when we stumbled upon the uh, the problem of people who are selling a marketplace is getting paid every 14 days or every 30 days or every 60 days. And that's when we pivoted to provide um, accelerated payout solutions for marketplace sellers. So we, did, we, we launched that product in 2016. Uh, to date, we've deployed a little over $2.5 billion in accelerated payouts and cash flow solutions to, to businesses. And, um, you know, we, we work with not just marketplace sellers, but e-commerce partners as well. Um, you know, platforms uh, like Magento, uh, Shopify, Volusion, and, and other website platforms. Because um, our goal really is to help online businesses. We focus exclusively on online and e-commerce and marketplace sellers. And our goal is really to help businesses grow. And the first approach we thought we could do that is through offering financing. But, you know, through our partner program and, uh, you know, other things we do with partners, we're constantly trying to bring, you know, value add to all the partners in the ecosystem. And, um, and yeah, I mean, we're, we're always kind of um, trying to innovate on our products, listen to what the market is telling us, listen to what our customers are telling us, and try to constantly improve and uh, create more value. Um, we are a tech company first, and everything we have is owned and operated by ourselves. So it gives us a lot of flexibility to be able to, you know, react when the when the market's telling us something. 
That's fantastic. And, uh, you know, speaking of reacting to the market, uh, is it fair to say with a 2015 launch of payability that this is uh, payability's first time operating in a recession or crisis? Absolutely. Um, I think a lot of we, we have some really seasoned people on our team. And so I think there are individuals in the company who have been in this industry throughout, uh, you know, a crisis. But even to bring it back to 2000, you know, 2007 to 2009, you know, a lot of people are making a lot of uh, analogies to that time. But what we're looking at is completely different. If we look at that 2009 period, GDP was down maybe 9%. There are, there are estimates out there that GDP is going to be down 50% just for Q2 alone. So I think people who are trying to draw too hard of comparisons, um, it's just a very different environment. You know, human nature in general makes you want to be around other people. And we have a very mercantile, you know, ec- economy and a service economy and a consumer economy. And I think we're, you know, the upside for all of us in e-commerce is everyone's moving those purchases online. But I still think it's anybody's guess what, you know, what the aftermath is going to look like this three, six, nine, 12 months down the road with even like little things like how comfortable are we going to be sitting in a stadium with other people? You know, how does that affect entertainment markets and stuff? So there's a lot of comparisons to 2008, 2009 out there. And I would just kind of caveat this with everyone saying like, let's, let's look at this differently. This is going to have different impacts. Um, But yes, our first time going through any type of uh, major recession as a company. Absolutely. And I think we can definitely take lessons from the past and, you know, try to apply them as best as we can. But there's been nothing like this in our lifetime. So, uh, you know, and I don't, you know, with other previous instances, I think that while we didn't know exactly what the end game looked like, there might have been more vision uh, into the future where right now, just the amount of time that the economy uh, stalls out the amount of unemployment, things like that. Um, we haven't reached peaks, and so in, until you get to some sort of an, an apex, <laughs> it, it gets difficult to predict. Um, and so, what's actually changed for payability in, in recent weeks? Uh, you know, speaking of uh, living in the moment and, and and experiencing this firsthand, how have your operations and uh, and your organization been impacted? so far yeah so i think like a lot of companies we we're all working from home now um thankfully in the technology industry we're very capable of doing it um you know a lot of our stuff we're doing online and doing through the cloud so everyone's worked from home we're based in new york city so uh thankfully our ceo is actually pretty ahead of this we did an optional work from home that then became a suggested work from home probably two full weeks before any New York can put out any orders. Um, and then I think there's, you know, there's getting over the whole work from home aspect and, you know, kind of, you know, a lot of, uh, we're doing a lot more video calls and things like that internally with our teams, trying to create a lot of, you know, like FaceTime and cohesion. But as far as, um, you know, our, our core business, we're actually busier than ever right now. Um, we're looking at the situation as a lot of, a lot of our customers are the essential businesses that are selling essential products on Amazon. They're selling PPE, they're selling toilet paper, they're selling, you know, different types of cleaning products and things like that. So if they weren't before, they probably are now because (laughs) that's what's in demand. And, you know, 
Uh, these are businesses that are, uh, you know, it's supply and demand. It's like saying you're an import-export. doesn't really first and foremost matter to you what the item is that's going in the box, just that you've got to get the item that people need and you've got to get it in that box. That's exactly right. And we've seen, uh, we've seen some of our own customers pivot into the PPE space, um, kind of to what you said, they're just really good sourcers. So they can source whatever the demand is. And they have, you know, some of our customers are in merchandising and, you know, wholesaling for multiple generations. So some of them were able to act nimbly. Um, Internally, we're treating this as mission critical, making sure that capital is getting to all our customers to make sure that they can restock an inventory. And, you know, whether they're growing their business or we're we're also maintaining that they're able to stay in business. and then, you know, there's the other part, the non-essentials that I think we've seen a huge uptick in. And if we think about it anecdotally, it makes sense. Uh, we just had a new customer come on that's selling yoga mats um, on our Shopify store. And she's seeing record sales because people are working out at home now. Um, I, we have another customer who's selling um, webcams and monitors and other types of electronics. And he's selling out as well as everyone comes to build their home offices. So I think in general, e-commerce is up. The other side we're seeing that is um, we're trying to be as flexible as we can with our customers because we know shipping delays are up as well. And we're trying to make sure that we're very careful that it's not a risk-related shipping delay, like you didn't have the product and you were maybe drop shipping. And it's that, you know, I think if we all go online to buy something right now, something we would normally have had this weekend, maybe now says we won't get it till March 15th. And so there's that organic cancellation of, mm-hmm. I wanted, to, I needed this product this weekend. I can't get it for three weeks, so I'm canceling it. And that's different than a risk-related cancellation of I'm making fake orders or something similar. So we've spent a lot of time re, you know, fixing and retooling uh, our risk to make sure that our risk models, our machine learning, our algorithms are all kind of updated with the times. Of, you know, it's not business as usual like it was six months ago. And making sure that our risk models understand that, you know, something might look like this and then spike. And what is the spike? Is it, you know, normal to the current time we're in now? Okay, let's not look at it as a risk issue. Let's more importantly, see if we can work around it and figure out ways to see where those issues are and then be more even more helpful. Yeah, you know, I know that there are fulfillment centers, there are three PLs and organizations that right now are, you know, are onboarding merchants, in some cases, helping them to move some uh, you know, some of their warehousing from other sources, uh, you know, companies that, that I'm in contact with, like um, Ruby has and ShipBob that, uh, that, that do some of this. And it's, you know, it's, it's just about being able to get product from point A to point B, uh, things that we often take for granted, but especially with, with orgs like Amazon that are focusing as much as they can on, on the essentials and prioritizing those, which is, I think, I don't, not something I disagree with, right? You know, it's, right. it's all logical. Um, you still have to, you know, be able to operate if you're not <laughs> providing something that's considered essential, uh, yeah. you know, or and, you and, certainly want to for the sake of your, your business, your employees, um, you know, you want to be coming out uh, ahead of the curve here. Yeah. Uh, and to your point about shipping too, I think what's, um, what's so interesting in the Amazon world, especially is you had FBA, Fulfillment by Amazon. It's probably one of the greatest programs Amazon did. And it, you know, I I don't have the exact statistics, so I wouldn't want to just make one up. But so many of our customers are on FBA. And we even can lower our risk when it's on FBA because we know it's going to get delivered. We know it's in the systems. And 
so many customers are now moving to FBM fulfilled by merchant, um, you know, and are self-fulfilling to your point. And they're, it's a great time to be in one of these shipping and third-party fulfillment centers and logistic companies because you're probably seeing a new group of uh, customers you've never seen before. But there is probably going to be a lot of hand-holding that goes with that too because people, <clears throat> you know, some customers used a um, FBA prep center and they were doing prepping it for FBA and then sending it to FBA. And once they were sending it there, it was kind of out of their hands and they were focusing on other parts of their business. So I think there's probably going to be a little back and forth as people learn how to self-fulfill more. Um, but, the, you know, with that could create tremendous opportunities too and maybe even some cost savings. So far, have any merchant stories specifically surprised you? Anything, you know, I, I know that for some of us, uh, you know, I've talked about a few times recently that, you know, th there are product categories that they make sense that they're flying off the shelf like webcams or home office equipment or, or you know, home fitness equipment. Uh, but still, you know, we get into these conversations with folks and it's, uh, you know, there's a first for everything. Yeah, so I think one of the ones, and it was actually, I forget the article, but someone had just posted like, you know, um, e-commerce like e categories, and we've mm -hmm. been seeing it internally as well. The bread maker category has been very, very yeah. interesting. It's, uh, it's higher than PPE right now, which is, you know, if, if I had to speculate, I would imagine people raced first to get, you know, different types of health and PPE equipment and everything. And then once they had that, they said, okay, well, if I'm hunkering down, what do I need? That or they, they just bought a lot of flour and now they don't know what else to do with it. <laughs> you know, that's you know, what won't do much by itself. So we're, we're in New York. So we usually, we usually get bad snow, bad winters. Uh, this winter has been a little light, but it's so interesting because, um, you know, every time a big storm is coming in, people always race to the grocery store and do some panic buying and they always buy flour, eggs and bread. And the whole joke is, you know, people who have never eat flour, eggs and bread on a daily basis, all of a sudden have to make French toast this week. <laughs> and I wonder if there's that same mentality of I have to have bread. You know, what if I can't buy bread? Because the bread bread makers, it's the growth is insane. It's yeah. it's you know, it's um yeah. the hockey stick that any VC would be looking for, essentially. Yeah. We uh you know, I, I think we're all seeing some of the same look, you know, when all the fresh meat was out at, at all the supermarkets, uh, I'm in South Florida. Uh you know, something perishable like that. And you say, how much are you planning to eat of that this week? Um, definitely about panic buying. That's not to say that any of us can accurately predict what's going to happen in our supply chains. I was just, uh, you know, reading about Smithfield and, um, you know, some of the, these, uh, you know, folks in, in the meat supply chain um, having issues. And so, you know, you don't know exactly, but, you know, we have in America, you know, thank goodness, a really robust uh, food supply chain. Um, and it is used to producing more than enough food for us uh, and, and still seems to be. So not necessarily enough to keep up with everyone's hoarding habits. But, no, for sure. Uh, and I think um, once we get past the panic buying phase, you know, and like people realize that they'll still be able to buy things online, I, I think at least on the shopping side, things will get a little bit, little bit more normal. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like in New York, uh, like our local restaurants are still delivering. So, you know, for a lot of people, they panic bought really, you know, excessively in the first two weeks. And now they're realizing my bagel shop still delivers, my pizza place still delivers. And it's like, you can see it just anecdotally, you know, in the stores locally that it's, it's calming down a little. 
Um, yeah. I've also seen delivery times for individual items I've bought uh, increase. I'm sorry, decrease. Like they're actually getting to us a little they're bit faster now. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen some of the same, well, you know, I, people rush to market to grab what they could in terms of educational supplies because kids are home in yep. different ways, you know, pet and animal supplies. Hey, if, you, if you're home and you have a horse, I, I certainly don't, but, <laughs> you know, this is probably a pretty good time to, you know, spend some time on that equestrian, uh, you know, a hobby or uh, activity of yours, you know, that there, there's a lot of things that I think would surprise some obvious, you know, home decoration, your home. Um, yep. if you still have the income for, and especially if you're trying to set up home office or do other things, uh, of that nature, that, that these things are just up. So definite winners. Um, you know, are definitely, you definitely some in the hobby space too. We've seen, um, now that you, th- now that you make me think of it, we've seen some really specialty like games and like, you know, like old, uh, you know, like kitschy, like things from like our childhood, like, uh, garbage pail kids and things like that. We've seen sellers who have like websites for that. And, um, you know, some of them are brand new. They had the hobby store and they've now taken it online and others were, you know, they were already online, but didn't have as much traffic. You're seeing a ton of that. I don't know if it's boredom shopping, um, you know, or, or, you know, it's just now's the time. Someone actually has the time to like look through a website and find these things, but we're seeing some of that like niche hobby and, and, and game market actually going up as well. That's really interesting. It's, you know, uh, hard to say exactly why that's an interesting psychological question for sure. Um, and are you, so you're in touch with all these different merchants. What are you seeing in terms of their liquidity? Obviously, you know, as we're talking about some are up in revenue, some are down in revenue. Um, what are some of the challenges that they're facing beyond the, the obvious overarching, uh, yeah. you know, challenges of, of general liquidity and folks going for SBA loans that, that they hope to turn into grants and things like that. Yeah. So um, I think the information put out by the government on the SBA programs has been a little confusing for people. I, I've heard very smart people say you have to have more than 500 employees when the program is designed to have less than 500 employees. Um, I think that you know, if, if we break it down, if we look at like, there, there's the two main programs, there's the payroll protection program mm-hmm. and the EIDL, the economic uh, injury disaster loan. If we look at the EI, EIDL, that, that program has existed. That's usually the program when there's a tornado or a hurricane or something similar. There was, and I don't know the number today, but before, you know, uh, COVID-19, there were only 140 loan officers in the entire country for this program. And that was, you know, usually the, the, the correct amount. And now when you have tens of millions of companies applying, I think they're very inundated. So we're hearing from our customers, there's definitely a level of confusion. We're trying to give our customers as much information as we can where they can apply. Um, In general, on the payroll protection plan, I think uh, what people need to kind of recognize is the different lenders out there that are kind of deploying the capital on behalf of the SBA. It makes sense for them naturally to focus on their own customers first and their biggest customers first. And I think that's where people have seen some frustration. Yes. You know, Citibank is going to want to give money to a, a Citibank customer. And then if they have choose two Citibank customers to give it to, they're going to want to do the one with more employees and more economic impact. Yeah. And so well, I think, um, yeah. I'm you know, I, I mean, for, for these banks, I, I think on the flip side, the more that I read about it, the more that I learn about it, they're, it's taking a huge amount of, of their uh, availability in some cases, you know, working through the nights, um, to be able to keep up with the the demand as is of their existing customers of what's going on there, so there, there's definite frustration. And 
you know, the banks will take on an amount of risk if this doesn't turn into a grant and it is a loan um, and there's only 1% at stake. That's not really, you know, what they're looking for in many cases. Um, you know, so they're going to have that on their books. They might have to sell that to secondary markets or get stuck with some of it. Um, what happens if people default on that? You know, not, not fun. Um, you know, not exactly where they wanted to be. This wasn't necessarily the, the bank's choice. Right. And they have to still go through, um, you know, a, a lot of the usual regula regulatory hoops. So making sure that you're not a terrorist or, a or, you know, doing business with terrorists or other things. So if there's 10 things that they need to check off on that regulatory list, well, if they already have a line of credit with you, they've probably been through six out of 10 of those. Um, yeah. if, if you're new to them, even if you've had a, a bank book with them, if you've had a checking account with them, if you haven't had a line of credit, um, chances are there's a lot of paperwork for them. It's a bigger process. And I, I've seen that stall out some people because they don't have a bank that they have that kind of relationship with. And the banks are just floundering to keep up with the relatively easy, <laughs> you know, in, in, in air quotations, uh, requests, um, let alone the fact that when this launched, everyone was frustrated because the SBA, the computer systems weren't fully ready. The, uh, the guidance was brand new. And I I'm still hearing questions from folks like, what about independent contractors? And what about people, you know, that have, you know, some employment, but also have side gig, uh, you know, and, and does that, that, you know, side gig kind of like an independent contractor get considered for some of these things. And in some cases, uh, I think the guidance is pretty murky at best. Um, so we're just, I, you know, the more people that I talk to about uh, their application process um, and kind of like filing for unemployment right now, the computer system issues, trying to get through the process, trying to know if you've done what you needed to do. And, and then with so many merchants going after the money, I think the other problem is that right now there's a certain pool of money and knowing how much you'll actually get funded with in the end, how much will really hit your bank account and can you count on that and when will it hit? Uh, there's just so much up in the air. So, uh, totally. you know, and I, it's, um, I think every point you brought up is completely spot on. You've obviously been doing your research on the, uh, on the programs. Um, two points, I guess I would add to it is, uh, one with, uh, a, a lot of new FinTech lenders coming in here, especially ones who have suspended funding uh, on their own. All they're focusing on is essentially helping to broker these, these programs. So, I think they'll get to leverage a faster application process. We don't know where they'll be in line as far as getting approvals. Um, I think that's still worth noting. One thing, I guess, if I were king for a day and I was going to rewrite this program, I think I would have chosen lenders to provide the EIDL loans. And I would have actually gone to the payroll companies, ADP, Paychex, JustWorks, Trinet, and all those companies, and just literally said, you know, I would have kind of done something where... You know, you have some type of, whether it's fintech or a lender, just create a very basic underwriting tool. Mm. Have you had a bank loan in the last two years? Okay, that's already like check one. And then I would have kind of, I would have, I would have leveraged the payroll companies a little heavier that way because they're the ones that are already in the process of distributing payroll. They would know exactly what your payroll is and then they could essentially just keep making payroll. And then it's essentially the, you know, the different banks funding those payrolls through the payroll companies. And I think that could have created a better process, but 
you know, everything was kind of up in the air and everyone was saying, yeah, they needed to move fast. I'm not here to say that I had a better, uh, (laughs) you know, in the moment that I was, that they didn't listen to my idea or something like that. Just the opposite. Um, I'm glad that they were able to move with something quickly. I know that there are little banks that this is not pleasant for, you know, if you're Wells Fargo or or City or one of these, uh, you know, B of A, you know, one of these big boys, not, um, not necessarily what you wanted to be doing, but also, Something that you you had the liquidity for, you were in a position to deal with. Um, I think there are some lenders right now in the mortgage market, for instance, that you know that are sitting on um, you know on on a lot of loans uh, that are going to have a hard enough time. Um, you know, so uh, ups and downs. You know, as much as kind of like the airlines. You know, we all looked at like you know CEOs got you know record pay and bonuses, and right. you know there were stock buybacks and they paid dividends and they did all sorts of things. Well, that's where the money went. Um, and you know, if, if the government's going to bail them out, we'd like to see the, you know, the taxpayers paid back with, with some dividends too. Uh, you know, in the case of the banks, they might be okay today, but you know, how much shock can they handle long-term? Um, it's exactly right. You know, so I, exactly right. And I, I think everyone kind of forgets the, the point you just said is the long-term they think, well, why can't they just deploy money now? And there's between fractional banking and different debt covenants and everything, I think if they could, they would. And there's a question of like, to, to your point here, they're, they're still sitting on assets that might not even be look that, you know, are already kind of illiquid by definition that might be toxic six, nine months from now, depending on how everything shakes out. Absolutely. Um, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> I know we've gone down. Well, one of my famous rabbit holes, uh, I, I'm seeing that, uh, you know, let me try to pull it back a, a little bit. Um, to specifically to you know to what's happening in in the the e-commerce and and online sales channels uh, in terms of liquidity. So I know we we've talked a little bit about how you know some merchants have different needs right now than they typically would. Um, that they they certainly have liquidity needs. Um, what is payability doing in that space um, to to help merchants um, to ease their burdens or? Um, assist them? And, and what does that process look like? Yeah. So our, our core product, and it was our flagship product, really, um, is uh, what we call instant access. And that is essentially us, um, for, for those who are selling on marketplaces at pay on terms, so we'll use Amazon as an example. Amazon pays every 14 days. What we do is we turn that from getting paid every 14 days to getting paid every day. So what we're trying to... So in normal environments, you know, usually that's used to restock your inventory and scale your business up. Right now, that's creating the the critical cash flow to even stay in business because a lot of times in, in our biggest sellers, you know, a lot of them would have a line of credit with a major bank or they'd have an SBA loan or they'd have other financing products and they were using us to essentially scale their business faster you know, reinvest in the business, keep scaling it. They were using a line of credit over here to pay for payroll and things like that. But they were basically taking the marketplace sales and reinvesting them every day instead of every 14 days to essentially scale their business up. What we're, what we're doing to try to help them is where, where possible, we're, we're trying to increase those advance rates. So typically we advance 80% of today's sales and we pay it out tomorrow. And then in 14 days, when Amazon releases the full amount, we give you that remaining 20% minus a small fee. And we'd hold that 20% for things like chargebacks and returns. That way, if we paid you 100% and you had a bunch of chargebacks and returns, you would technically owe us money 
We didn't want to create that type of situation, so we, we hold a reserve, which is pretty typical in a factoring type situation. What we're doing right now is we're trying to increase those funding amounts and, and shorten that reserve every percentage we can. So if we're seeing that your returns and chargebacks are you know, closer to 10% and we're holding back 20% of a reserve, we're trying to get that closer to 90. If you're at 90, we're trying to get that closer to 95%. Um, we're also, for some clients, we're automating when we pay them out. So typically you would log in and you would request, you would have your available balance and you could request funds. We're, we're trying to automate that process um, on our seller card. So we have the payability seller card. It's And I'm not trying to do a full sales plug here, just for, for context so people know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But uh, we have our payability seller card. It's a Visa corporate debit card. And when we make capital available, it's in a digital wallet. And, you know, we provide you a dashboard. And from there, you can wire it to your account. You can do a same-day ACH, instant transfer on ACH rails, or you use the, the payability card where we give you 2% cash back for every dollar you spend. What we're doing right now for... Um, uh, we were piloting it with some Shopify customers is we're giving them 5% cash back for Facebook spend and trying some different programs like that. Um, what we see with marketplace sellers is that the marketplace drives a ton of demand and that they usually need to keep up with the demand. So they need capital for inventory. What we're seeing with our customers who have their own websites is that they need to spend capital to drive demand. Uh, whether it's Facebook ad spend, Google ad spend, other types of advertising. So we're trying to work with them as much as we can to get capital in their hands to create, create you know, um, additional ad spend. Because, you know, I think one of the hardest things about being online in general, you're open 24-7, 365, and that's the amazing part. The hard part is, unlike a traditional brick-and-mortar store, you know, I can walk past a pizzeria, I can smell that pizza. I can, even if I don't go in right now, I can remember it and go, oh, maybe I'll go check them out. Maybe the the bagel shop is sponsoring my child's little league team or something like that. There's this way that they exist in real life. If we're selling online, we don't exist unless we spend money to drive people to our site. You know, there is organic, there is SEO, there is organic social media plays. Those are very long fought battles and they work, but it's that's a nine month plan. Whereas if you're getting a website up and you want traffic in the next two weeks, it has to be paid for. And so that's where we're trying to increase amounts and things like that. And the same is true if you're pivoting. So if you've got new, you know, you're now making face masks that you weren't making before and you want to get the word out quickly, you know, you can certainly put some posts in social media and hope that they go a bit viral. But the way that those platforms work today, expect to boost the posts, expect to invest some money to get the word out, Um, you know, at a high level, right? I mean, there's tons of strategy to be had on, on the marketing side, but uh, I follow you perfectly. If you're trying to pivot in the moment, if you're trying to be reactive to what's going on out there um, and, and not just, you know, sitting on your hands, right. uh, absolutely, you, you need the the resources to do that. Um, and, and one thing that we're seeing that's actually kind of interesting, I, I don't know how easy it would be in today's times, but we were seeing it a lot at the end of last year, uh, a lot last year, actually, in, in the beginning of this year, is People who have their own websites, whether it's Shopify, Magento, you know, they're working with JetRails, they're online. They're starting to use Amazon as just a marketing agent. And, you know, Amazon's a little tight. You can't like say like, oh, come back here and I'll give you a discount. But just to go a little, to get their name and brand out there a little more, we're seeing a lot of sites that have their own website. They have a really great brand. They do a lot, um, you know, whether it's on social or paid media, 
but we're seeing them creating Amazon stores literally as just another marketing channel. Again, I don't know how feasible it is right now with Amazon being a little restrictive uh, with non-essential items, but it was very interesting to watch, uh, you know, um, last year especially. Uh, and it was kind of like they knew that Amazon drew, drew demand. When you're new to Amazon, Amazon will actually draw increased demand. So it's like coming out to Amazon with a new store can actually give you more demand than if you had been on there for a year already. And it's interesting how to, you know, it was originally I'm on Amazon. Now I want to diversify a way to try to cut fees. And now we're seeing people who have their own site going onto Amazon just as another kind of guerrilla marketing tactic, if you will. Absolutely. I mean, the same reason that folks engage in a lot of marketing, you have to be where the customer is, where the shopper is, where they're discovering new brands and new opportunities, where they're searching for product. Uh, and so if you're not engaging in certain channels, sometimes you lose out. With Amazon, I consistently call them a frenemy to merchants that, uh, you know, that there are concerns about the data that they're collecting, if they'll compete with you directly, if there'll be knockoffs uh, in Amazon, or if someone will try to, you know, in one way or another, squat on your brand, your products. Um, th there's all sorts of things that can go wrong. And so I think it has to be a measured choice about what you're going to list and how, for instance, if you're, a, you know, it, there's a lot of brands that don't think about selling much on eBay, but if you're selling refurbs or closeouts or other things that might not sell as well through your direct channel, maybe eBay is a better place for some of those. Exactly. That it's not always an all or nothing strategy. Sometimes it's supplemental or sometimes you, you have a version of product uh, that, that fits really well with that marketplace consumer. Um, and, you know, I, I've known businesses that, for instance, they sell a main product through uh, an outlet like that, but all the accessories and all the add-ons are only available through their own website or something else. And you get the package and you get this whole cat, you know, this whole, well, if, if you need, you know, these extensions or these, you know, these accessories, here's where you get them. <laughs> yep. You know, um, so th there's a, a lot of different strategies that you can deploy to, to try to make it work. And to that point, we actually, we've been trying to help some of our merchants who are looking for other places to offload products. We've done intros to get them on other marketplaces to kind of fast track it. Um, and we've helped them like uh, find different like fulfillment centers and things like that. Uh, sometimes we do it through like just a newsletter and marketing. And then other times we're doing it like through like a managed handoff where we're actually making introductions to them to other marketplaces because each marketplace kind of has its own strengths and weaknesses. Like Amazon has a lot of search, but if we're going to go all the way to that top level of the of discovery, you're not really going to Amazon to s discover products. You're going to Amazon because you know what you're already looking for. Usually. You don't really write. You don't really write in what's the best tissue. What are the best tissues? You already know that you're looking for tissues, so you write tissues. You write toilet paper, or you write, you know, um, or you're searching USB for Kleenex converter. or Charmin, or yeah, yeah, or you write like USB converter plug for a Mac Pro 13 inch. Whereas like on other platforms like Google, you know, obviously, or like Pinterest, that's more of like a discovery platform where they're like learning things, they're getting into the rabbit hole, they're kind of picking apart. And then once they know what they're looking for, that's when they'll typically go to Amazon and type it in. And then like eBay, I think a lot of strengths there are for niche type products. Um, if you want, you know, I bought my father a matchbook from uh, his own restaurant from the 70s. Wow. You're not going to find that on Amazon. You have to find someone that actually has this matchbook. You know, and so like yeah, that's the where same with Etsy so, so with handmade strong. items totally. and 
uh, and, and more niche also, which does quite well. I think, you know, for Amazon, you know, some of it is being prepared to invest into some of the advertising spend that you can spend within Amazon to sponsor yeah. products or otherwise get in front of an audience that's looking for something similar or a competitor's item um, in order to get that chance to get in front of the, the shopper and let them see uh, what you've got. The, the challenge is often bloat um, that they're not, as I've consistently said on the podcast, they're not your customers. They're Amazon's customers. Right. And so when something comes along a little cheaper or, um, you know, there's some other happenstance, uh, you know, you start to lose some of that market share. Um, it's not necessarily something that, you know, and, and I mean, <laughs> not to say that you can count on much these days, right? You know, the world can turn upside down quickly as we're seeing, but I, I think less so when you're not the master of your own destiny. At, at JetRails, we work with a lot of Magento websites and a lot of open source websites. And I think that, you know, merchants by and large enjoy not having uh, a tech company that controls what they can integrate with and not having a tech company that owns all their data and sees all their data, um, but rather um, having more of their own manifest destiny and, and having some, some protection in that. Um, we know in, in their parts of the world where SaaS isn't doing as well and marketplaces aren't doing as well as a result. Obviously, in the United States, there's a uh, you know, there's a big mix. And for more established businesses, medium and, and large businesses, um, they, they will typically look at, at open source as a first choice if they can, um, whenever it'll make sense, um, you know, for a lot of these reasons. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to turn it back to payability again, because I, I do want to know more about what you're experiencing. Is there... Is there an uptick in specific demand? Are you seeing more requests? Are you onboarding more customers as a result of more requests? What's what's the lay of the land? Yeah, so I would say we're, we're definitely seeing more requests. Um, when I looked briefly, and I did just some back of the back of the you know back of the napkin math, it looked like originations were you know like new applications were up maybe 300 percent. Oh, is that all? Time last year. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a tremendous number, and those aren't even final numbers, so it could be even much higher. Um, we're seeing a lot. What's interesting is we're seeing customers that have been on our newsletter for years, and some of the like top 10 biggest Amazon sellers in the world have been following us for years, all of a sudden now are putting in applications and asking to talk with us. And I think when you're talking about sellers that are doing, you know, $5 million a month, you know, I think they're those were all sellers that have large businesses. Um, they had traditional financing sources. And as their lines of credit are getting dwindled down, capital is becoming harder to get. Um, for our access product especially, we're basically giving them a line of credit on their own capital. So we're just giving them their own capital faster. On the advanced product, which is a lump sum of capital similar to a working capital loan, um, we're seeing a lot of demand in that too. I think overall, we're just seeing a tremendous amount of demand. Um, and are, are are you able to meet a lot of that demand? Are you able to approve the uh, the majority or, or an average uh, amount of I'd users? Say, I'd say for for those who are qualified, we're approving the vast majority. I'd say where I, where I would cut the caveat is there are a lot of people who have just within the last month decided to get online, and we do have minimum criteria. Like in the case of someone selling in a marketplace, we have to see at least three months time in business. For those with their own website who are looking for like a you know, um, in advance there, we need to see nine months time in business. 
So I think the um, a lot of the uh, D, you know DQs on our side are coming from someone saying, "I'm just jumping on. I need capital," and they're looking for a loan to essentially start their business. And that's not really that's not really how we're built. You yeah. know, in those situations, we we try to point them in the best direction. But for the most part, we are we are approving people. We're making record new originations. Um, trying to sign up everyone we can. We're even probably stretching our credit box more than we normally would. In these times, knowing that you know we're trying to get everyone on, we're trying to be as hopeful as we can. That's fantastic. And how long is it taking, on average, to get through that process? If someone, from the time they finish putting in their application with you, uh, you know, how long until they've got an answer, and and how long until they've got some kind of an advance or or some sort of uh, financing in their hands? So um, typically, the onboarding, the application itself, takes about ten to fifteen minutes. And then we approve you. We're we might be a little delayed now more uh, on a Monday because we had a ton of applications coming over a weekend. Um, but typically, it's twenty four hour approvals, and then once you're signed up, we're providing capital on the uh, on the advanced side, like which is like the lump sum of capital. It's taking a little longer. We have had to add a couple other risk steps in. You know, for the biggest advances, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars, we are ask we are asking for, um, in some instances, to pay your vendor directly, which is mm-hmm. something we normally only did in the most risky cases. Um, that way, we know that the what, what the capital is being used for. Um, but typically, it's twenty four hour approvals. I would say on the on the capital advance side, maybe it's a little closer to seventy two hours before the capital is actually in your hands, and that's just. You know, because the amount of originate the amount of new applications we're getting in the door, but we're actually we've been hiring right now. Uh, we're one of the few companies that are hiring right now, but we've actually brought on a couple new uh, couple new colleagues and uh, team members on to to literally handle the large influx. That's awesome. And uh, are, just Tyler, are you primarily hiring in New York with the expectation that eventually you'll get some in person time with, with some of these folks, or uh, yep. <laughs> are you taking on anyone remotely? Um. So. Technically, everyone's remotely, but we are the the plan is to hire uh, in New York. So once we're back in the office, they're in the office with us. Um, I'm actually hiring on my team right now too, and I've I've struggled with do I want to just wait till we're all back in the office? Do I want to hire now? And the, and now it's so up in the air that we've all just moved forward to hiring virtually, which is its own whole experience. Yeah, still great to hear though that you know always love hearing people hiring right now. You know, warm fuzzies. Yeah. And, and yeah, look, no, it, you know, there are certain unique things about a, a conversation like this. I mean, I, I don't often talk to folks who, whose product, the product that they work with is money. If you ever do have free samples or anything like that, you can definitely <laughs> let me know. Um, and, you know, on, on that lighter note, uh, I, I really do appreciate all the time that uh, that you've given us today. Uh, a lot of great insights. Um, any final thoughts before we wrap it up? Um, so one thought I, I did have is when we were talking just a couple minutes ago about like different types of businesses and different strategies, I think one thing to remember is how people define e-commerce is very, very different depending on who you talk to. You know, it could be a marketplace seller. It could be a, a, a site that is designed literally just to be an online retail store. It could be a SaaS business. It could be someone with their own coaching, you know, like, um, like, um, like someone who has a, online coaching or just like business coaching and things like that, but they're taking their orders in through online. We have a, a customer who has a, a 
specialty off-roading car uh, like car fabrication company. But because she's processing all her orders online, you know, because she likes the the website features she has and everything, it's a real business. It is a typical brick and mortar merchant. But because she's processing everything online, we were actually able to work with her. So it's it's amazing to me, and I think um, to a lot of people that when we define an online business or an e-commerce business, how very different they can be. And um, you know, I always just find it interesting as I talk to more and more partners and companies, what, how they define e-commerce. And I typically use the word merchant a ton, but, you know, others use supplier, there's merchant, there's, you know, sure. SaaS and everything. I sure. Depending on whether you're dealing with brands, manufacturers, distributors, uh, you know, retailers, depending on whether you're dealing with an online first business or an omni-channel business that's exactly. dealing with unified commerce or, or multi-channel commerce. It's, uh, it is tough to get some of the the wording right. You know, you're you're trying to fit a lot of businesses and individuals under one roof. So that's that's definitely a a good point. Uh, <laughs> how we're looking at at, at these times, and um, you know, in some cases, what's available, what programs are available to to businesses based upon uh, where they're selling and where they're interacting with the world and uh, and how they're operating. So. Um, you know, w- with that, I, uh, I, I do want to, again, you know, thank you for joining. And to our listeners, as, as always, thank you. Um, I, I have been throwing out a public service announcement on, on recent episodes. So uh, I will have in the notes to the show, the description, uh, some links for programs like Offline to On for merchants that are currently uh, in a situation where they don't have their own e-commerce website and they're trying to uh, get across that finish line. Um, TomPachalski.com, uh, one of my teammates here at JetRails, who uh, has been bringing together some great resources in the e-commerce community um, for those that are facing challenges, whether it's getting uh, their uh, their shipping set up for curbside pickup, or um, you know whether it's that they're having you know issues of more demand or less demand, whatever the case may be, that we want to make sure that you get routed to experts that can help. And uh, above and beyond, as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and happy selling.